Hi there. This is Ricky Rosen, the host of Nervous Habits Podcast, with an important message. There are now over 1 million coronavirus cases worldwide. In America, there have been over 250,000 cases of COVID-19, 103,000 of them in New York, according to the John Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center. This disease has already claimed thousands of lives in our country alone, and 171 others. The Center for Disease Control has advised all Americans to stay home, avoid close contact with others, engage in social distancing, and wash your hands often. If you are sick, wear a face mask and quarantine yourself for at least two weeks. Clean and disinfect surfaces daily and seek medical attention if you are having an emergency. The only way that we are going to beat this thing is if we all come together and most importantly, we do not panic. The next few months will not be easy, but the key to slowing the spread of COVID-19 will be following the advice of the medical professionals and staying home. Thank you very much and enjoy the episode. Three, two, one. <laughs> what? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with Jesus some of these people. Put um, down your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, Would uh, you rather? Right, trust me, take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. Hamalom, that's halo, namaste, shalom, and welcome to Nervous Habits. I've got an exciting episode in store for all of you where we dive into questions including... How the need to conform to others can drive you to answer questions incorrectly. Why hardly anyone gives money to homeless people on the subway, and it's not for the reason you think. How the death of one woman in the 1960s led to the creation of the emergency 911 system. Why our jury system fails to produce justice so much of the time. And how anonymity is the key to addressing all of these issues. All that and so much more on another episode of... Nervous Habits. How's it going, guys? It is a chilly spring day here in Washington, D.C. as I sit with my extra-large coffee from Dunkin' Donuts, caramel syrup and cream, of course, and my banana, and I'm actually eating avocado out—I'm eating out of an avocado with a spoon, which I've never done in my entire life, in my 27, nearly 28 years. Usually, I just slice it up and put it on toast, but I just got I had a hankering for it, so it, 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 it's interesting, I, I, you know, I'm eating it like— like uh, almost like ice cream, and it's good. It's a great source of, of <laughs> uh, healthy fats and and vitamins and micronutrients. So highly recommend it. Um, it's actually crazy. I mentioned first time in twenty seven, nearly twenty eight years. I turned twenty eight in less than three months, which is sort of terrifying because I don't know. I I, just, I don't feel like I've done everything that I've needed to in my first twenty eight years of my life. Um, so that that's a little alarming to me. I also, I still meet, meet people and they think I'm, I'm, you know, 19 years old. So the closer I get to 30, the, the harder it is to believe. As always, guys, keep sending those emails in to nervousheavitspodcast at gmail.com, nervousheavitspodcast at gmail.com. I have been getting emails from folks who are interested in appearing on the podcast as a, you know, for a thematic discussion or for a guest interview. I'm certainly open to that, but Definitely want to make sure that whatever you're interested in discussing is something that synergizes well with the themes of the pod. You know, I I think based on the first 30, 35 episodes, however long it's been, I have a good idea of what topics you guys are all interested in and, and you know, what I'm, you know, the things that I'm energized by discussing. So kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly open to that and, and email is the best way to reach me. And then of course, Twitter at Nervous Habits underscore Facebook, or rather we're not, we're not on Facebook, my mistake, YouTube, search Nervous Habits Podcast, Instagram, Nervous Habits Podcast. We're not on Facebook. We're not on LinkedIn. I don't know if people even use LinkedIn anymore. Uh, I usually just get spam messages. I'm all excited. Oh, you know, one new message and it's just LinkedIn trying to lure me back in with some, you know, paid trial or whatever. But uh, yeah, so, so that's, that's how to reach uh, how to reach me at Nervous Habits. I'm in kind of a weird mood today, if, if you have been able to pick that up. It's been a longish week, but excited to chat with all of you guys about another social psychology topic. As you guys know, psychology was my forte in school, 
And today's topics on conformity and groupthink, I actually, back in college, I did this program called, I think it was MIT Spark. I still have a a green t-shirt where I sent, it was a club where college students would go to MIT and teach interested middle schoolers. So grades six to eight, pretty much topics of their choice. So, you know, if you studied biology, maybe you'd, you'd, you know, speak to them about anatomy. I guess that might be a little awkward. Or if you studied history, you'd talk to them about history. So I, I, the topics that I'm going to chat with you all about today were the same ones that I, I spoke with middle schoolers about, just with group dynamics and the need to conform. And they were, the way that I framed the lesson for them is different than I'm going to frame it for you, just because, you know, I had to consider who the audience was and what their interests were and craft examples that really that they responded well to. But it's it's probably my favorite area of psychology and I'm, I'm super excited to, to get into all of it with you today. So let me set the scene for you guys. You're back in uh, in school. You're in, I don't know, fifth or sixth grade. Or you know what? I, I guess that wouldn't work if you weren't in grade school. All right, whatever. You're in math class and your instructor asks you a basic math question. What is eight times four? And you're sitting with 10 to 15 other people. And the teacher goes around a circle and she begins asking students one by one for the answer. You're surprised when the first student says 27. You think to yourself, oh, I don't think that works. 8, 16, 24, that's not 27. But then the next student answers 27. And then the next. And then the next. And by the time it gets to you, you have this existential dilemma. Do you answer 27 going along with what the rest of the group seems to believe is the correct answer? Or do you trust your own math skills that you've learned over your entire life and say 32? Now, this seems like an easy answer, but it's really not. And psychologists have done this experiment and experience like it that I'll get into later. And it's all the evidence points to the fact that the need to conform is a powerful element of our daily life, particularly in group settings, in large group settings. I remember back in college, when I was in social psychology, uh, a couple courses, one of them was, one of the homework assignments rather, was to violate a social norm. So do something that went against the unwritten rules of society. So what I did was, I went to the dining hall one day, and you know, there were dozens and dozens of, of uh, tables, kids sitting at the chairs and eating their, eating their uh, dinner at, um, on the table like a normal human being. And I walked over to the table, I put my backpack down and I sat down on top of the table instead of the chair and I ate my dinner on my lap. So visualize that. Everyone around me, probably like 150 kids, are sitting at the chair eating dinner on the table and I was sitting on the table, you know, eating on my lap. Um, I, I can't remember if I got in trouble. I, I honestly didn't do it for too long because I was super paranoid that someone would, you know, that I'd somehow get penalized or whatever. But anyways, I afterwards I wrote down how people reacted and it was it was remarkable. I mean, it's it's exactly what you would expect. People would kind of look over, befuddled and bewildered, and people would come up to me and ask what I was doing, if I was okay, if it was some sort of prank, if this was for YouTube. And eventually, you know, I, I told them it was for a social psychology class. But when you violate a social norm, what that you know very small experiment showed is is it's apparent to everyone, and people are very confused. Now, in that sort of context you didn't see conformity. Like there weren't people around me that decided, oh, you know, this is the new social norm. I'm going to sit on top of the table too. But in other examples, in other experiments, people did conform. So there's lots of videos of this on YouTube. But if if you're standing on the sidewalk and you decide, you and a couple of your friends, you're just going to, you know, stop and look on top, you know, crane your head a little bit and look at the top of the building for a few minutes and what you'll notice is all the people walking by will stop and will look along, they'll stand alongside you and they'll crane their necks too. And they'll, you know, and they'll kind of look and see what is this person staring at? And then it becomes this, this sort of sheep, sheep herding effect or, or, you know, what have you, where everyone that stops by, um, that walks by stops and turns their head a little and, and sees what's going on. And obviously there's nothing going on in the building, but just that, that need to conform, that that part curiosity, but part desire at our cellular level to do what other people are doing pushes people to act in ways that defy their common sense, defy reason, defy you know what they were planning on doing anyway. And there's lots of videos of this on YouTube. If you just search like conformity, you know, staring at building, people on sidewalk, 
Mm, just eat my avocado um, out of the avocado. So, like, what would you do in that situation if you're walking down the sidewalks in the city and you see a bunch of people looking up? You would probably stop for a moment, even even if just for just for a microsecond. But what you're really doing is you're conforming to their behavior. And there was a TV show on called Candid Camera. I don't know if all of you guys watched it. I mean, if you grew up in the 90s, you definitely did because that was this was like before reality TV or whatever. And one of the conformity experiments in the show, because they would they would do Candid Camera was essentially they would do these weird social experiments and just observe how people react when they don't know they're being filmed. And so one episode, so you had a group of people on an elevator who all stood facing the rear. So most people, if you step in an elevator, you stand forward. That's just the unwritten social norm. So a couple people were on the elevator and they were just standing facing the back. And when people got on the elevator, you guys, everyone else ended up facing the rear so as not to stand out from the rest. And one young man, there was one form of this experiment where the group started turning to every side repeatedly. So every time the elevator would stop, they would face the rear and then they'd turn to the left and then turn to the left and turn to the left. And one young man even turned repeatedly to every side when the other members of the group did. So he would turn a lot, even though it makes absolutely no sense. And, you know, he's probably wondering what the hell are these people doing? But he did it anyway. There was another variation of the experiment where the people in the elevator who were wearing hats would just take their hats off. And the person who got on would take his hat off too. So you really see this pervasive conformity in groups, particularly with strangers. Because I know what you might, you might be thinking, okay, if you got in an elevator and all of your friends were on it and a couple people were facing the back, you might not conform to that because you already have that, that sense of acceptance and belonging with your friend group. And that's, that's very true. But I guess the type of conformity that I'm talking about and the experiments that, that I'm going to go through is really general societal conformity with others. So it's not limited to, to you know your kin, to your friends, or your family. And what, hap- what tends to happen in groups is this, this concept that you might have heard of. It's called de-individuation. It's essentially the state of losing your individuality in groups and sort of blending into the group dynamic. And let's, let's delve into this a little bit because I think if – you know, if I give you like an example, it might be easy for you to relate to it. So I, I don't know if any of you can relate to this, but have you ever felt like one of those people who loves to hang out with your friends one-on-one, but you feel like you struggle to be yourself in groups? I certainly can relate to this. I think I'm someone who one-on-one, I I can <clears throat> I can feel completely relaxed and comfortable and be like goofy and silly. But if you put me in a group, all of a sudden I feel like I lose a little bit of my individuality. I got swallowed up by the group a little bit. And there is an element of conformity there where you just end up agreeing with or conforming to whatever the group says or does. And, you know, you can't be yourself. And, you know, it's not social anxiety, though you might have that too. This is actually a social psychological phenomenon known as groupthink, which most of you have probably heard of. Some of you might have studied it. A lot of you might have a general idea of what it is, but not know the specifics. And you see groupthink in daily life if you're in school, like I am, where the professor asks a question and people are too afraid to raise it. Specifically, when the professor asks a question that's so fundamentally easy that everyone just expects someone else to put their hands up. And that form of groupthink is called pluralistic ignorance, which is a situation where a majority of the group members privately reject the norm but they go along with it because they assume that most others accept it. So you assume that someone else is going to raise their hand. You know, the question's so easy, someone else is going to raise the, raise their hand and, and answer it. And that's pluralistic ignorance. Groupthink, as I mentioned before, is really most pervasive with strangers. So maybe you might feel more comfortable diverting from the norm when you're surrounded by your friends. But when it's people you don't know, if you're sitting in a conference room at your office or in the cafeteria at your school and someone makes a statement like, Apple products are the best. I don't know how anyone has a Droid or a Google phone. Even though you might internally disagree, vehemently disagree even, a lot of times you keep your mouth shut because you don't want to be an outcast. And then you get this this sort of domino effect, this waterfall effect, where everyone just ends up agreeing with each other. And this is the essence of groupthink, where people, particularly groups of strangers, will be hesitant to defy the established opinion of the group and essentially, as I said with pluralistic ignorance, they'll privately reject something but publicly 
They'll keep their mouths shut because others in the group embrace that. And groupthink has catastrophic results, which you've probably heard of throughout history. I'm going to mention them later on in the pod. But if everyone just ends up agreeing with something on the outside and no one expresses their hesitations, bad things can happen. It's a phenomenon that I like to call, my friends and I like to call, the hive mind. Just like a colony of bees coordinating the behavior, everyone seems to just latch onto each other in a big group. And if you don't believe me, you know, go out and do a social experiment for yourself. I challenge you to ask 20 people one by one whether they prefer Marvel or DC movies. Just, just you know, do a little experiment and jot down the answers or, or you know, write them in your phone. And then get together a group, you know, 10, 15 people. Again, ideally strangers where, where people are less reluctant to be an outcast, although I don't know how you would do that in practice, but 10, 15 strangers and ask them, do they prefer Marvel or DC movies? And what you'll see is generally after a couple of people participate, there'll be this established opinion of the group. Somehow it will become clear that this is a Marvel group or this is a DC group and people will just magnetize onto those opinions and by the time 12, 13 people are saying DC, which I don't, I don't know why they would, Marvel's clearly the superior, you know, set of films, the exception of Joker. By the time the 12th or 13th person has said DC, the, you know, 15th person to respond probably doesn't want to say Marvel. They don't want to be out. So I guarantee that the answers will be different if you ask one by one compared to in a group. And that's really the essence of groupthink. So as I, allude, as I alluded to earlier, Groupthink is a psychological phenomenon where we agree with other people just to keep the harmony of the group, even though in secret we don't agree with them. And the common desire of groupthink, much like with conformity, much like with anything in social psychology, is just a desire not to upset the balance of a group, a desire to be liked, a desire to be accepted, a desire not to be the one person who goes against what other people say. Because let's be honest, let's get more avocado. How many of us want to be the one person to stand up to a group of people with a diverging opinion. And this kind of bleeds into, I'm not planning on talking this today, but talking about this today, but this bleeds into politics and socio-political norms where everyone just ends up agreeing with with each other and it ends it becomes an echo chamber where no one will express a divergent opinion and you end up it ends up quality, you know, squashing discourse, harming discourse because you don't have the expression or discussion of contrary beliefs. So that's that's a different discussion. Actually, I, I, I went into that a little bit on episode 14 when I talked about PC culture. So if you're curious about maybe elements of conformity in that context, definitely give that a listen. But really, for, for this episode, I'm talking more generally like psychologically and anthropologically. So as I said, the desire to be liked creates this dynamic within a group where creativity and individuality tend to be stifled in order to avoid conflict. And just if you're curious on where groupthink came from, there was a psychologist uh, at Yale University, Irving Janis, who coined the term in 1972. And the term groupthink was a reference to the Orwell, George Orwell book, 1984, which if you haven't read, is one of my all-time favorite books. For, for a long time, for most of my life, I think, it was my favorite book. I did, I, <laughs> I did book reports on it in like fifth grade, seventh grade, ninth grade. That's the thing when you're younger, you can pick one book that you really like. And then when the teacher says do a book report, you should do the same book over and over again. Hopefully they still have book reports. But in the book, the party, which is the government of Oceana, created this language called Newspeak. And Newspeak was a heavily restricted grammar and vocabulary meant to limit the freedom of thought. So essentially, because you had fewer words, it meant less expression, so less free will, diminished personal identity. And these things threatened the ide- the ideology of Big Brother and the party, so they created this language to stifle that. And you had words like doublethink and thought crime instead of extremely complicated concepts. You know, keep the language short, keep the thinking constrained, keep the party in power. This was the basis for the word groupthink. You have this portmanteau, groupthink, meaning the way that you know, the way that people tend to think in groups. And a really great example of groupthink was shown in the Ash Conformity Experiment, which you probably all learned about in Intro to Psych. And this is, honestly, this is more of an example of general conformity and obedience in groups than groupthink, but there's a lot of overlap between the concepts. And just to refresh your memories if you haven't heard about it, because it's a really interesting experiment. So Ash was a scientist who created this experiment to study conformity. 
And he got together a group of students and gave them each a piece of paper that was divided into two halves. On the left side of the paper, there was one line, which was the target line. And on the right side, there were three comparison lines of varying lengths, A, B, and C. The experiment was really simple. All the participants had to do was say out loud which comparison line, A, B, or C, matched up the closest with the target line. And this wasn't difficult. I mean, it, the way that Ash you know, drew out these lines, it was very obvious which comparison line was the answer. If you don't believe me, just right now, Google search Ash experiment and hit images. You know, if, if, you're, if you're in front of a computer, um, which maybe some of you are, uh, you know, if you're on your phone, whatever, just look at, the, look at the lines. It's very obvious which one the answer was. And so there were two groups, an experimental group and a control group. For the experimental group, a participant was placed with seven confederates, seven like plants who were told by Ash what their responses would need to be. The real participant didn't know this and was led to believe that the other seven confederates were also real participants like themselves. For the control group, so that's, that's the experimental group. For the control group, there were no confederates and only real participants. So they did this for 18 trials, and the confederates gave the wrong answer on 12 trials. These were the critical trials. So they give the wrong answer, and Ash wanted to see whether the real participant would conform to the majority view even when it was clearly wrong. Just like the 8 times 4 is 27, would the person answer 27 or would the person answer 32? And Ash measured the number of times each participant conformed to the majority of view. On average, you guys, about one-third of the participants who were placed in this situation in the experimental group went along and conformed with the clearly incorrect majority on the critical trials. Over the 12 critical trials, about 75% of participants conformed at least once and only 25% of participants never conformed. 75% of people said the wrong answer when it was clearly wrong. And just to show you that there were no confounding variables in this experiment, look at the control group. With no pressure to conform to Confederates, less than 1% of participants gave the wrong answer. So three quarters of people gave an answer which they clearly knew to be wrong just because others in the group said that that was the answer. This experiment showed a lot of things, and it was groundbreaking when it took place in the 1950s. It showed not just how susceptible we were to conformity in groups, but just how dangerous group dynamics could be for the purposes of making decisions or judgments. Now, the answers to this to the Ash conformity experiment were given individually, which is why it's a conformity experiment. But let's say the group had to decide holistically. They had to write down on a sheet of paper, what's the answer? That would be groupthink. And as you can see, the group would probably get it wrong. I mean, it's tough to say because, of course, the Confederates were stooges, so they were told what to say. But there's a chance that the group could get it wrong if they were to decide holistically. And, you know, psychologists struggled for a long time to understand just what went wrong, what happened in the Ash experiment, why the effects of being around others had caused people to second guess what was right in front of their eyes. You know, the target line clearly matched line A, but if everyone else was saying it matched line B, then maybe mine was printed wrong, or maybe my glasses need to be cleaned, or maybe I'm not feeling well. Maybe something's wrong with me. And could you blame them for feeling this way? I mean, put yourself in this experiment. It's easy to say that you would have said A when the other seven people in the room said it was B. But in that situation, I am sure that some of you would have succumbed to the social pressure. I know I would have. And it calls to mind, just because I mentioned 1984 earlier, there's a scene towards the end of the book. This might be my favorite scene, one of the most famous scenes from the book, where O'Brien, one of the members of the party and the major antagonist of the book, he's torturing Winston and... He's asking Winston how many fingers he's holding up, and he's clearly holding four fingers. So Winston says, there are four fingers. I mean, this is a mathematical certainty. And one of the defining themes of the book was that if the party says that two plus two equals five, then two plus two equals five. And the scene is written so well, there's, there's, no, there's no way I can do it justice. But essentially, Winston, Winston says that O'Brien's holding four fingers, and he gets electric shocked. And O'Brien asks him again. 
How many fingers am I holding up? And Winston says, I suppose there are four. I, I would see five if I could. I, I'm trying to see five. I don't see five. There's four. So he gets shocked again. O'Brien says, how many fingers? Winston says five. O'Brien doesn't believe it. He says, do you wish to persuade me that you see five or really to see them? He gets shocked again. O'Brien asks, how many fingers? Winston starts freaking out. I don't know. I don't know. You'll kill me if you do that again. Four, five, six. In all honesty, I don't know. And finally, O'Brien stops shocking him. It's a powerful scene, and I can't recommend the book highly enough. Um, But again, why I share that with you is just to show the degree to which the desire to obey and conform can overpower, can supersede your physical sensory perception. You see four fingers, but you you can almost convince yourself that you see five because of the potency of that influence. And conformity and groupthink are what leads to what's called the bystander effect, which we've all heard of it. It bystander effect occurs when the presence of others discourages an individual from intervening, usually in an emergency situation, but it really any situation where, where someone is asking for something, someone needs something. I talked about this a lot in the pod, but before moving to DC for law school, I lived in New York for five years in the city. And so every day, for five years, I rode the subway twice a day to and from work in Manhattan. And at least a couple times a week, a homeless or destitute person would get onto the train, you know, can I have your attention, please, sharing some difficulty that occurred in their life and asking for food or money. Sometimes it was was really sad and tough to listen to. And, you know, honestly, my 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 first week in New York, I probably gave more money to homeless people than the next four years and 51 weeks combined. Just because, I mean, there's, there's a lot of people that need help that are struggling in New York. But there are plenty of reasons why when, when a homeless person gets on the train, everyone chooses to ignore this person. We're all tired. We're all cranky. And let's be honest, this is the fourth or fifth guy that's been on this train car today. But I actually do think this is an excellent example of the bystander effect. Because the bystander effect involves a couple things. First, you have diffusion of responsibility, where... You don't feel responsible for something because there are so many others present. And then you have pluralistic ignorance, which I mentioned before, assuming that everyone assumes someone will do something, but no one does something. No one wants to be that person to do something. And both of these apply to the homeless people coming out of the subway. I don't feel like the responsibility is mine alone because there's 40 other people he's talking to as well. And I assume someone else would step up and give him money and and you know, someone usually does. That's also (laughs) pluralistic ignorance because you assume others will intervene and and no one does. Now, usually, or not usually, but oftentimes, actually, it's usually and oftentimes, oftentimes feels less, usually feels like a lot. Oftentimes (laughs) feels like a little less than usually. So oftentimes uh, it only takes one person where one person will get up and give the homeless person a dollar and then another and then another, and another. And you see this kind of waterfall effect take place. And once that one person acts, the bystander illusion, the illusion that everyone's responsible, it just dissipates, and people intervene. And, you know, you see this in in other settings as well. I mean, if you go back to the example where the professor asks a question to the class and it's too easy and no one raises their hand, one person puts their hand up, and then another and then another, and you get that waterfall effect. Now, just to be clear, it doesn't always work out that way. And there are stories in the news every day. A couple years ago, there was a two-year-old girl in China who was hit by a small van as she walked on a road. And while she laid injured on the road, according to news outlets, a total of 18 people walked by her. Some of them even walked around the blood. And a larger truck came and ran over her. And finally, a man picked this two-year-old girl up and called emergency services. And she was taken to a hospital where she survived for eight days before dying. And that was, um, I think that was in October 2011. The most, probably the most famous occurrence of the bystander effect was in 1964, Kitty Genovese, uh, a 28-year-old woman living in New York. So Genovese was coming home from her work at a bar at around 3 a.m., 
and she parked her car about 100 yards away from her apartment building, and she began walking back towards her uh, apartment entrance, and a man named Winston Mosley, uh, a lot of Winstons in the pod today, by the way, that's... So Winston Mosley approached her, and when she ran from him towards the front door to her building, he chased her and stabbed her twice in the back. Genevieve screamed and cried out for help. Now, this was 3 a.m., so clearly there was no one else around, but, you know, it's New York City. I mean, people people can can always hear what's going on. So she screamed and cried out. Mosley ran away, and several of her neighbors in her apartment heard her cries. There was tons of investigation that went on afterwards. So several neighbors heard her cries. Not all of them knew it was a cry for help, and reports kind of vary as to how many people called the police. But no one, you know, went out to see if she's o- she was okay. No one called down to her. No one intervened. And so after being stabbed two times in the back, Genevieve got up and staggered towards the back door of her apartment building. But a locked door prevented her from entering. And so she collapsed on the ground. And Mosley, believe it or not, after stabbing her twice and running away, he, he returned. And he found her about 10 minutes later after he first stabbed her. And when he found her the second time, he stabbed her several more times, raped her, and left her for dead. And after the murder, the New York Times ran a story with the headline, 38 who saw murder didn't call the police. There was one man in the story who said, viewing the murder... From his third floor apartment window, he stated later that he rushed to turn up his radio so he wouldn't hear the woman's screams. So this is colossally fucked up in a lot of ways. Um, also, I don't, I don't know if you can say that people in New York are more hardened or desensitized, but it's hard to imagine this happening in other cities. One more thing um, I want to mention here. The guy who killed her, Winston Mosley, actually died in prison a couple years ago. He served 52 years. But the point is... The bystander effect really shows how, taken to an extreme, how if you remove, remember de-individuation, once you, you remove someone's individuality and they blend into a group, how our sense of, our moral compass and our sense of ethics and humanity can just completely fade away. So let's say that you're listening to this and you think, you know what, 1964 was a long time ago. Surely we've come a long way in the last... 56 years, surely the bystander effect doesn't, isn't as prevalent now as it was back then. Well, let me bring you back to Candid Camera because Candid Camera actually did experiments like this where they essentially simulated environments to see if the bystander effect still affected people's willingness to intervene in emergency situations. In one scenario, there was a situation at the mall where one plant, one confederate, pickpocketed a an innocent person who was, of course, another plant in the direct vision of a number of bystanders. Probably about four or five people noticed the pickpocket take place, and each of them kind of locked eyes with one another, and no one did anything. One man in particular just kind of turned away, thinking, no one else is doing anything. Why should I? There was another candid camera experiment where they showed a sick man lying on the streets. He was dressed in ordinary clothes, and hundreds of people walked past him. Helping would be inconvenient. It would be risky. He lied there for 20 minutes, and no one raised an eyebrow. The strangers formed a temporary group with one rule. Do not help. And candid camera wanted to kind of test out whether or not his clothing, his perceived social status, had any sort of effect on whether or not people would help. So they did the same experiment where they had a sick man lying in the streets, but this time he was dressed in a suit instead of casual clothes. Within six seconds, people were coming by to check on him. Within a couple minutes, the police came to intervene. So it kind of shows you, first of all, that the bystander effect is still a powerful force in 2020 as much as it was in the 1960s. But also that our willingness to intervene is impacted by things like the social status and class of the victim. The gender plays a role. The race plays a role. It's not black and white. But be that as it may, it's still perplexing. It's something that scientists and psychologists can come to terms with, and I can't either. How you can take 
people who are religious and spiritual and pious and virtuous and have strong sense of ethics. And all of a sudden, when you put them together in a group on a subway train or in the mall or on the streets, they become this conglomeration of amorality where no one wants to intervene because they're part of that group. That group with one rule, do not help this person. And one last thing about Kitty Genovese is that her death led to the, and this is really interesting, her death actually led to the creation of the 911 system in America. When this incident happened in 1964, there was no centralized number for people to call in case of emergency. There was no 911. So, I mean, look, I'm not, ex- I'm absolutely not excusing the conduct of, of you know, people, but if, if, this, if this happened in 2020, you know, you could just pick up your cell phone and call 911. People didn't have that option. I, I don't quite know, you know, what Rico, if they could have, they like what had to go get the police if they had, they had to call a police station directly. But in preparing for this podcast, I was reading an ex- excerpt from a book, Kitty Genovese, The Murder, The Bystanders, The Crime That Changed America by Kevin Cook. And Cook essentially said that after Genovese died in 1964, the community in New York was rightfully horrified. And so the prevailing sentiment was that Genovese was failed by her community. So in the aftermath of the crime, local officials joined a national campaign to create a unified emergency response protocol, which, as I mentioned, was not in place prior. And so the 911 system was born in 1968, according to Cook, owing to some measure from the outcry from Kitty Genovese's death. And fun fact that I also uh, learned about from reading Cook's book, the reason why they chose 911 is because they wanted a number that was short and easy to remember, and they needed a unique number. And since 911 had never been designated for an office code, area code, or service code, that was the number they chose. So if nothing else, you learned a couple things today. Now, I want to get back to groupthink for a minute because I, I alluded to this earlier in the pod. Groupthink, much like conformity, as you saw with, with, with you know with, with Genevieve's, on a macro level, on a national level, when you implicate enormous groups, when you implicate the government, groupthink can have disastrous consequences. And the most famous instance of groupthink was the Bay of Bigs, the Bay of Bigs, <laughs> the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba. And just to brush you guys up on your U.S. history. In 1961, in the midst of the Cold War, the U.S. was fighting with the Soviet Union. And meanwhile, in 1953, up until 1965, the Cuban Revolution took place. This was where Fidel Castro overthrew the Cuban government and created the Communist Party, which I believe is still in power in Cuba today. So back in 61, the United States decided that they wanted to reverse Castro's Cuban Revolution by military invasion. Because the more the more countries that were allegiant to communism to the Soviet Union, the more the more dangerous, precarious situ- situation was for the states. So in 61, the United States wanted to reverse the communist revolution in Cuba. So Eisenhower initially set the pieces in motion for this invasion uh, at the end of 1960. I think, I think, I'm pretty sure it was called the Bay of Pigs at the time, right? Or actually, let me, let me fact check that. Yeah, it was. It was called the Bay of Pigs because there was a a bay where pigs were off, Los Cochinos, were offloaded by the Spanish in Bahia de Cochinos. Okay, so it was Bay... (laughs) I thought Bay of Pigs was like some tactical mission. No, it was actually called the Bay of Pigs in Cuba, Bahia de Cochinos. So, So Kennedy took office in 61 and he was briefed on Eisenhower's plans. Now at the time, Kennedy was new to the job and he was dealing with this awkward dynamic where his administration inherited from the previous one, not just the plan itself, but a force of Cuban exiles who were being trained by the CIA and who had been assured that they would be supported by the U.S. in the invasion of Cuba. And as you, as everyone knows, the Bay of Pigs invasion didn't just fail, but it was maybe the most humiliating catastrophe in U.S. foreign policy, maybe in, in United States history. And there were a lot of reasons why it didn't work. One of them was Kennedy's, you know, the fact that Kennedy failed to specify roles and set standards that would encourage members to express their own views and challenge assumptions. But everyone agrees there was a a breakdown in communication. And historians say that the drive for consensus among Kennedy's advisors basically precluded crucial information from being discussed and has been blamed for the invasion's failures. So essentially, there were a bunch of decision makers in the Situation Room with the president— all of whom were privately doubting the efficacy of the invasion, and none of whom spoke up. And this is groupthink. 
I, I don't know that in a situation like this, you can lay blame on one person. As I alluded to, you might be able to say that Kennedy was to blame for failing to foster an environment where folks felt comfortable sharing diverging opinions. But really, anytime you have a group of people together, there is a risk that you might have this breakdown of communication that would give rise to groupthink. And even though this was almost 60 years ago, I'm not going to lie. I'm concerned about this sort of situation happening in the White House in 2020. I could envision a scenario where President Trump, and by the way, this, you know, this isn't just Trump, where any president would be sitting around the table with the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and they'd be discussing a possible invasion maybe of the Middle East or Iran or North Korea. You know, worst case scenario, they'd be discussing maybe a nuclear attack. And President Trump might suggest launching missiles, launching ICBMs, and there might be a complete breakdown of communication, just like Kennedy's team, where people privately reject the idea but go along with the consensus of the group. No one speaks up, and all of a sudden, nuclear war and mutually assured destruction. It is a horrifying possibility. But this is the reality of group dynamics in any setting. It's not just political. I mean, you, you also see groupthink in, in the legal and jurisprudential environment. You might, you know, you can make the case that our jury system falls victim to groupthink, and that might be why it fails to produce justice all the time. Because again, just like you saw in the Ash experiment, if you initially think, if you're on a jury and you initially think that the defendant is not guilty, but then, you know, you're, you're conferring with your peers and seven of them say, you know, we think the, the defendant is guilty. Obviously, there's a significant pressure for you to conform to the group. And just like, you know, in the Ash experiment, you might end up going against what you internally, logically have concluded just to, you know, be accepted and, and not be outcasted by the group. And if you guys ever seen the movie, another movie reference for me, 12 Angry Men, in the film, there's one determined holdout who eventually can convinces the other jurors to vote alongside him through, you know, long and contentious deliberations. And let's be honest, there are other factors at work here. People are tired, people are under social pressures, time pressures, and they're more likely to lose their willpower and just give in. So groupthink is a serious problem. And as I said, even even at the smallest level, when you're having friendly banter with family, you know, maybe you're voting on where to take the next vacation or you're in a club and you're voting for who's going to be the next club's president or even something innocuous like you're at work and you're voting whether to order Thai or Indian food for lunch. It doesn't always have to be high stakes. It doesn't always have to be, you know, invading a country. We are so influenced by other people. It's so, so difficult for anyone, no matter how strong your willpower might be, no matter how unique or resilient or resistant to peer pressure you might think you are, we're all so influenced by others and it's so difficult to maintain your individuality in that context. So what can we do to minimize it? Because like I, you know, on Nervous Habits, I present these sometimes terrifying issues and then I'm not just going to leave you high and dry. I, I want to sort of propose solutions if, if they exist. And one of them, as I mentioned at the open, that I think works pretty well is encouraging anonymity as much as possible. Anytime anyone's voting on anything, because some, some of the examples I gave have to do with that, I encourage you to do it on a piece of paper, folded up, and done anonymously. And it sounds like common sense, but it makes a big difference. I remember back when I was in college in student government, this was, this was huge when we were voting on, you know, I was in the student senate and 30 of my peers would vote on the executive senator, which is like the, the person who runs the senate. And it wouldn't just be, you know, all right, raise your hand if you think Ricky should be executive senator. Raise your hand if you think Tom should be the executive senator, you know, Melissa, whatever. Because then, I mean, then you essentially see, I mean, a couple of things. Number one, you have to deal with the fallout of seeing that your friends, people who thought you were your friends voted for someone else. And then also you end up being pressured. Wow, like whoever goes first, it's like, wow, a lot of people voted for this person. I'm going to put my hand up or, you know, no one's voting for this person. I'm going to wait to vote for the second person. Even... In law school, you know, it, professors are always asking questions to the whole class. It astonishes me. The professor will pose a question and say, who thinks this case was decided right? Or who thinks this case was wrong? And amazingly, 
100% of people always go on one side or the other. Isn't that amazing that you have 105 incredibly educated and intelligent and diverse and opinionated students and they always answer those types of questions the same way. The ratio is always 105 on one side, zero on the other side. And it's universal. It's not just law school. It was the same thing in high school and in college. The professor would ask a question and everyone would either put their hand up immediately and no one would raise their hand the second time or not raise their hand the first time and then raise their hand the second time. And when I get questions like that, I'll be honest, I never raise my hand. <laughs> it's too risky. It's, it's you know, I don't want to be the only one raising my hand for the yes or the only one raising my hand for the no. I just wait to see what everyone else is doing, which is literally the personification of pluralistic ignorance. But it's frustrating that the professors haven't realized that people aren't answering the questions honestly. They're just answering them based on what other people think. And my civil procedure professor, there was one time I remembered very well, we were doing, it was a class on discovery, and she asked us, she wanted to, you know, to see what we would do in a certain situation that had to do with the ethics of, we were counsel for a pharmaceutical company, and the clients essentially uh, divulged to us that there was potentially incriminating documents. And she wanted to see what would you do with these documents? Would you destroy them? Would you turn them over or whatever? But rather than just asking us to answer and getting that 100 to zero, she told us to close our eyes and raise our hands if we thought we would do A, B, or C. And you know what? She got honest answers. People, you know, I think it was like 70 people said A, 20 people said B, and 15 people said C. It wasn't just 100, zero, zero. And it was so refreshing because... No one would know how we felt but her. And we were answering the question, not for each other, but in our own opinion. So if you're listening to this and you're an educator, that's one practice I think you really should adopt. And in some situations, of course, you can't have anonymity. You know, it's, just, it's not conducive to that. So there are other things you can do. The first thing is the leader of the group should avoid stating their opinions or preferences when asking questions or assigning tasks. Give people time to come up with their own ideas first. You can also assign one individual to take the role of the devil's advocate. And I can promise that if one person speaks up to say, you know, I disagree. I don't think you should be able to patent body parts or, or tissue. Other people will feel more, more free to share their honest opinion. Just like when one person raises their hand, another person raises their hand, another person raises their hand. It doesn't become you know, so fear-inducing anymore because you're not the only one going against the grain. So just tell one person you're going to be the devil's advocate. Even though they don't actually believe that, they're going to, they're going to play the part. Also, I mean this is, this is like common sense, but leaders should not be in the group for, you know, for these discussions to avoid overly influencing decisions. Just leave the room if you can. And by and large – like we saw with with Kennedy, with uh, you know his purported failure to do this, but encourage group members to remain critical and don't discourage dissent, don't discourage challenges to the prevailing opinion. Encourage people to be skeptical and to be critical. And maybe if you're in a situation where there are high stakes and there is a lot that potentially could go wrong, you have cultivated an environment where people feel comfortable sharing their private opinions and not stifling them to just go with whatever the group thinks. So the bottom line is conformity, groupthink, these are powerful forces at work in our everyday life. But even though they're inevitable, there are things that you can do to control them. And maybe the most important thing is just be aware that when you're in a group, these, you know, these factors are at work. And maybe you can be the devil's advocate. Maybe you can be brave. You can be the one to go against grain. I mean, takes a lot of courage. Like I said, I, I don't know if I'm always that person. I, I will say with friends though, and again, you know, drawing the distinction between friends and strangers, with friends, I, I am kind of a contrarian. Um, I am kind of the one who's argumentative, who, you know, likes to, to stir up the debate. I hate echo chambers, so I'm constantly disagreeing with my friends. Also, I mean, just in general, my friends and I don't see eye to eye on everything, so that's kind of another matter altogether. But just be willing to to share your private opinions and not just you know go with go with the grain. So let's kind of um, summarize. We've covered a lot of ground here. 
on this episode. We talked about social norms and the consequences of violating them, standing in an elevator the wrong way and watching people turn their bodies to stand in the same direction or standing on the sidewalk and craning your neck and looking at a building and passerbys would, you know, stop and, and see what you were doing. We also talked about the hive mind and how, you know, it's possible to reject or rather privately reject a norm and publicly agree with what other people are saying. Of course, the conformity experiment with Ash answering clearly incorrectly, 75% of people conforming, even when you know that it's not the right answer. Um, We also talked about the powerful force of obedience, like in 1984 with 2 plus 2 equals 5, the bystander effect, diffusion of responsibility and pluralistic ignorance, leading people not to give money to homeless and destitute folks on the train. Um, We also talked about Kitty Genovese and how her death sparked the 911 system and showed just how far conformity and the bystander effect could go, the adverse consequences it could lead to. We talked about groupthink and the historical accounts, the Bay of Pigs invasion, and potential um, worst-case scenarios in 2020, as well as with the jury system and how those forces would affect that. And we talked about how anonymity could help to reduce groupthink, as well as having one person play the role of devil's advocate and creating an environment where dissenting uh, dissenting opinions are encouraged. So next week, I'm going to have a special guest with me on the pod to talk about cancer, believe it or not. And maybe we'll dive into um, the science of coronavirus because as I said at the beginning of the episode, I know that's on everyone's minds. So we will be answering questions like, is it true that everything we use from cell phones to microwaves to artificial sweeteners can cause cancer? Is there a cure out there that the pharma companies don't want us to know about? How does machine learning and AI figure into this? And has anyone tried giving cancer to the cancer? That's coming up next week on Nervous Habits. Thanks so much for listening, guys. This has been another episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. Shoot me those emails at nervoushabitspodcast.gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at nervoushabits underscore Instagram, nervoushabitspodcast, and clips on YouTube, Nervous Habits Podcast. And remember, if you get on the elevator and everyone is facing the wrong way, you're probably on candid camera. (laughs) Have a good one and stay nervous. Take care.